Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. It's time for another solo sit-down this week with me, Dr. Sam Williams. And this week, I thought it would be helpful to cover a topic which comes up in paces that is quite frequently overlooked and could be a potential banana skin. That topic is medical ethics, with a focus on consent and capacity, which is mainly going to come up in a station four, the communication stations. While some people might say that ethics is quite easy, as we encounter situations with ethical elements through the course of our daily work, the scenarios which come up in paces can be particularly complex. Not only that, but for those of you who are approaching interviews, whether that's for internal medical training or for registrar posts, complex ethical issues are frequent features in these interviews. So even if you've passed your paces, you may find this helpful as you progress through your career. Then, to finish off at the end of the show, I've written a few worked examples in the form of clinical cases, which hopefully will help you succeed both in the PACES exam and in any interviews you might have further down the line. So without further ado, let's get into this episode talking about consent and capacity. So, In order to approach an ethical problem in medicine, it's important to have a foundational knowledge of the principles of medical ethics. One disclaimer, which I should declare at the start, is that any legal statements I make are correct at the time of recording and apply only to the UK. If you're one of our lovely listeners listening from somewhere that isn't the UK, please remember that this may not apply wherever you may be listening. So, starting off with the four pillars of medical ethics. The first of these is autonomy. This is otherwise known as self-rule, respecting the patient's right to decide on how they are treated. Second is beneficence. This means doing good for the patient and acting in the best interests of the patient at all times. Third is non-maleficence. The exact opposite of beneficence, it's not doing harm to the patient. And the fourth is justice, treating all patients fairly, both with regard to the distribution of resources and the distribution of our own time as clinicians. Now, the subject of today's episode is capacity and consent, which mostly relates to autonomy, beneficence, and non-maleficence. 
Obviously, a patient with valid consent is exercising their right to autonomy. However, when the situation arises where a patient loses capacity, there then becomes a discussion regarding beneficence and non-maleficence, doing good for the patient and not doing harm. This can simply be put as acting in the patient's best interests. Moving on to discuss consent. The underpinning principle of consent in medicine is autonomy, that a competent patient, by which we mean a patient who has capacity, has the right to refuse any medical investigation or treatment they wish. The first place you may have seen this is possibly at medical school, when you saw a doctor consent a patient for a procedure or an operation. However, there are several key elements of consent in order for the consent to be valid. These elements are that it should be Firstly, informed, by which the patient has been given adequate information to make a reasoned decision. The second factor is that the patient must be competent, i.e. have capacity to make that decision. And the third factor is that it must be voluntary. If consent is gained by pressuring or coercing a patient into having the operational procedure, that is not valid consent. The next question you might ask is, why do we even need valid consent? The reason is that if a doctor does not obtain valid consent and proceeds with any procedure or operation, whether or not it's successful in its aims, the patient could sue that doctor for battery. This is one person touching another person without their consent, or in a medical context, a doctor performing any procedure on a patient without their consent. However, nowadays, it's more frequent to find legal cases concerning negligence. The most common reason for negligence is the claim that the patient was not provided with enough information. They weren't sufficiently informed to make that decision. Now, how much information and what information is required for consent to be valid? Well, in short, you want to not get sued for doing your job. You want to avoid battery and avoid negligence. In order to avoid battery, you need to make sure you've explained the proposed procedure to the patient in terms of what is involved. To avoid being sued for negligence, you need to show you've given the patient enough information to make a reasoned decision. This is explaining the benefits, risks and alternative actions, including what happens if we do nothing. The exact guidance on what information to provide to a patient varies massively depending on the type of procedure being performed and as such it's probably too much for us to try and cover in one podcast episode. Legally this also gets very murky and probably won't come up in paces or any interviews. So we're going to only slightly skip over this bit. So, now we've covered what it means for consent to be informed, let's discuss what makes a patient competent to make a decision, or in other words, possessing capacity to make a decision. In the UK, this is governed by the Mental Capacity Act 2005. In order to be seen to have capacity, a patient must be able to understand the information that's being given to them, They must be able to retain that information, weigh up that information as part of a decision-making process and then communicate back that decision. A deficiency in any one of these factors will mean that the patient will be assessed as lacking capacity. It should also be noted that all practicable help should be provided to the patient when they try to make this decision. This could include explaining things in different ways to ensure they've understood. Maybe they're hard of hearing and require it to be written down so they can read it, maybe explaining multiple times so they have the opportunity to retain the information, maybe having a family member there to help them understand. Trying to help them weigh up the decision can be tricky without leading the patient. After all, it's their decision. But again, this is somewhere where family can come in. 
And then communicating back their decision means giving them any means possible to help with that. They might require a pen and paper to write their decision down, and you can provide that for them to ensure that they can consent. One trick which many doctors use when ascertaining a patient's capacity is to ask the patient to repeat back what they have understood you have explained to them. This allows them to explain it in their own words, which can demonstrate their understanding. Repeating it back shows they can retain the information long enough to make that decision, and clearly, if they can explain it back to you, they can also communicate the decision to you. When talking about capacity, there are a few important principles to consider and apply. The first of these is that any patient over the age of 18 is presumed to have capacity until proved to be lacking it. The second is if a patient in the doctor's opinion is making what seems to be an unwise decision, this is not the same as lacking capacity. It might prompt a doctor to perform a capacity assessment, but does not mean that they lack it. The third and fourth things are that capacity is decision specific and also time specific. This means a patient may not be competent to make decisions about the operational procedure, but they may have capacity to decide where they want to go when they leave hospital. The time specificness of capacity is that the medical team should always be open to the idea of capacity changing in future. This is particularly true in the context of a patient with delirium, psychosis or acute illness. And if possible, the decision should be delayed until the patient has regained capacity. So the next question would be, what do we do when someone lacks capacity? The first thing to always remember is that anyone, absolutely anyone, whether that's family, the medical team or anyone else, anyone who makes a decision on behalf of a patient who lacks capacity must make that decision in the person's best interests. The other caveat is that the decision should be the option which is least restrictive on the patient's rights and freedoms. The patient in question should always be involved as much as possible. As I mentioned before, capacity can be variable and is not a snapshot of an opinion. Just because a person makes one decision at one time, they may well change their mind in future. Capacity is something to be continuously assessed as a serial measurement, not just a snapshot. So, usually, the first step when trying to ascertain a patient's best interests is to involve the close relatives or family of the person lacking capacity and ask about any previously expressed wishes, including religious and spiritual beliefs. The family can be extremely helpful in a number of ways. The patient may have given them specific wishes at a previous point in time. The family will probably have a good idea of the patient's general values, which can inform how you can make a decision in their best interests. They can provide information about the patient's current quality of life and how this might change depending on if a treatment decision is made in their best interests. One thing which is critical to investigate is whether anyone has been appointed as the patient's lasting power of attorney. This is a person or persons who are appointed by the patient at a time when the patient has capacity to make decisions about either their finances or their health and welfare. There can be more than one lasting power of attorney and further stipulations can be made, such as whether they can make decisions in isolation or whether they both must agree on decisions made in the person's best interests. One thing to note here is that if the decision is regarding life-sustaining treatment, this would have to be explicitly stipulated when the power of attorney is appointed. 
Another formal way of people documenting their wishes is the form of something called an advanced directive or an advanced decision. The legal aspects of these are laid out in the Mental Capacity Act. The purpose of an advanced directive or an advanced decision is so that a capacitous patient can extend their own autonomy to a time when they may end up losing capacity. They need to be quite specific, specifying the exact treatment to be refused and the advanced decision will only apply when the patient lacks capacity. Again, if the advanced directive regards non-life-saving treatment, this can be verbal or written. However, if there is an advanced decision regarding life-sustaining treatment, then there are several requirements in order for the advanced decision to be valid. It must be in writing, must be signed by the person making that decision. The signing must be observed and signed again by a witness, and the exact statement specifies that the advanced decision applies even to life-sustaining treatment. There are several circumstances where an advanced decision may not be valid. Either the patient has withdrawn the decision at the time that they have capacity, the patient has appointed a lasting power of attorney which covers that decision in question, and that appointment was made after the advanced directive was made. The last point is if the circumstances are different from those set out in the advanced decision, or if circumstances have arisen which were not anticipated by the person when making the advanced decision. So, we've discussed what actions can be taken to make decisions on behalf of people who lack capacity. But what happens when the patient has no family, no lasting power of attorney, no advanced decision, and you have essentially no information to go on? Well, there's a special type of person you can call. No, it's not the A-team. It's an independent mental capacity advocate, otherwise known as an IMCA. Now, I've only encountered IMCAs once in my career so far, so my experience is quite limited, but essentially they are people who are appointed by the Court of Protection to make decisions for people when they lack capacity. They will liaise with all members of the MDT to make decisions they deem to be in the patient's best interest. Moving on to talk about something else which you may have heard of in and around the hospital is something called a deprivation of liberty safeguards, otherwise known as a DOLS. This is an amendment to the Mental Capacity Act and is a procedure for patients who lack capacity to make decisions about their care, particularly relating to the place where they are looked after. So what does the deprivation of liberty bit mean? Well, the Supreme Court ruled that you are being deprived of your liberty if you are under constant supervision and not free to leave the place where you are, and you lack the capacity to consent to these arrangements. The Supreme Court designed an acid test to determine how we can judge if someone is being deprived of their liberty, and it comprises two key questions. The first, is the person subject to continuous supervision and control? The second question is, is the person free to leave? Now, if you think the patient in hospital is posing themselves a significant risk by remaining at home, and they don't have capacity to leave hospital, and you feel it's their best interest to remain in hospital, they could be someone you consider subjecting to a doles. One important element of this is that any restrictions or restraints used to protect the patient must be proportional to the harm the caregiver is seeking to prevent. For example, if a delirious male patient is confused in hospital, continually walking into the female bed spaces when they're being provided personal care, the appropriate course of action would be to lead the patient back to their own bay, 
or maybe close the doors to the female bay to prevent him getting in. However, if the same patient is being aggressive to members of staff, throwing objects or putting other patients at risk, then an appropriate response could include physical restraint or the use of sedation or other medications to control his behaviour. So, we've talked about the basics of capacity and how they relate to the pillars of medical ethics. We've talked about what we can do when patients lack capacity and the sources of information we can reach to to determine what is in their best interests. And then finally, we have ended up talking about dolls and when this would be appropriate for our patients. So we're just going to have a quick word from our sponsors and then we will be back discussing our worked examples of some clinical cases with some special guest appearances from people you won't have heard before. So don't go away. You won't want to miss these clinical cases. This episode of the Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by PassTest.com. Over at PassTest.com, they have multiple clinical cases in their online revision resource related to communication, consent, and capacity. Two of the ones I've just looked at right now are persuading a patient to remain in hospital and consenting for a lumbar puncture. So go over there, look at PassTest.com slash Paces to get access. Welcome back team to this episode where we are discussing consent and capacity and for the end of the show I thought I would treat you to some realistic cases which may come up or at least something similar might come up in your PACES exam or even in interviews for training posts here in the UK. One thing I should stress is that all of the examples are purely fictional and made up by me. So any likeness to any similar situations or things seen in other resources are purely coincidental and unintentional. I also have a couple of very special guests playing the part of our patients. Mama Williams, that's right, my mum is playing the part of our female patients and Cousin Dave is playing the part of my male patient. We've got three cases for you, so without further ado, let's get started. Case number one. You are asked to speak to the relative of an 82-year-old lady, Edith Green. Prior to coming to hospital, she was relatively well for her age, suffering from hypertension and hypothyroidism. She lives fully independently with her daughter nearby. She was found to have a fever of 38.5 degrees foul-smelling urine and some suprapubic tenderness on examination. She is being empirically treated for a UTI with intravenous antibiotics. You are the admitting clinician and you find her to be confused, asking where the train station is and asking if she can go home because she's just had a baby who needs looking after. You return at a later time because she's pulled out her cannula which had her IV fluids and antibiotics running. She continues to say she wants to go home, but can't remember the previous conversations you had with her and does not seem to understand the reason she is in hospital. She has been agitated, climbing out of bed and found several times wandering around the bay and has nearly fallen on three occasions since admission. Her daughter has already been updated by the nursing staff and is concerned about Edith's safety in hospital. And your task is to speak to the daughter and answer her questions. So that's the brief And the next questions which are coming up are the questions from her daughter. So have a think about how you would approach each problem, 
and then we will discuss the answers after that. Why is my mum acting so strangely? She's never been like this before at home. I'm really concerned about her having fall. How can you stop this happening? This is so unusual for her. When is she going to return to her right mind? She keeps saying she wants to go home, but she isn't going to be safe there. You're not going to let her go back home like this, are you? I'm concerned I can't be here all the time. What happens if she gets more unwell or needs another decision made on her behalf? So guys, thinking about your approach to these ethical problems, the first question was, why is my mum acting so strangely? She's never been like this before at home. Now, hopefully this is nothing new to any of you. It's quite obvious that this patient has a diagnosis of delirium due to her infection and she currently can't make decisions for herself. She has lost capacity. The importance in the station would be to explain the diagnosis and explain the effect on her cognitive function to her relative. It would also be important to ask her daughter about any advanced directives or lasting power of attorneys or any spiritual beliefs that the patient may have. Explaining that she's lost her capacity to make decisions regarding her discharge means she would be suitable for a dolls. The next question was, I'm really concerned about her having a fall. How can you stop this happening? Well, when someone's under a dolls, they are usually placed under closer supervision than the usual patients on the ward. It will be important to keep a very close eye on the patient to ensure that she's not having a fall and ensure that she is only mobilising with assistance from other members of the healthcare team. The third question, this is so unusual for her, when is she going to return to her right mind? Well, delirium is one of those things where it can be very variable to, to determine when someone's delirium may resolve, but it would be reasonable to say, given her good baseline cognitive function, that you would hope the delirium would resolve with appropriate treatment of her urinary infection. However, this is extremely variable between patients and it would be important to emphasise that it's very difficult to predict how long a delirium will take to resolve. The fourth question was that the patient still keeps saying she wants to go home, but she's not going to be safe. You're not going to let her back home like this, are you? So clearly, this is a simple question to answer in that no, obviously we aren't going to discharge a patient who is going to be unsafe at home. It would be important in this case to reassure the relative as best you can and explain you would only ever discharge her when it is safe for her to go home or to discharge her to a place where she can be appropriately looked after when she leaves hospital. The last question is the daughter is concerned she can't be there all the time. What happens if she gets more unwell or needs another decision made on her behalf? Again, it would be very important to reassure the daughter here and explain that all decisions made on the behalf of her mum, who has lost capacity, would be made in her best interests. But any significant decisions made regarding her treatment would be made in conjunction to her daughter and there should be regular discussions to discuss this. 
So, moving on to case number two. A 56-year-old gentleman with no known past medical history presents having been found collapsed in the town centre. On admission to the emergency department, his identity is not known, so he is booked in as an anonymous patient. He is hemodynamically unstable, with a blood pressure of 80 over 40 millimetres of mercury and tachycardic at 135 beats per minute. He has clinical signs of chronic liver disease and passes a large volume of melina in the emergency department. A venous blood gas shows a hemoglobin of 5 grams per deciliter. He is immediately transfused two units of blood and taken for immediate endoscopy, which identifies actively bleeding esophageal varices, which are successfully treated. He has remained stable and has been transferred to the ward, but is still quite drowsy. His wife attends and is very upset to hear he has received a blood transfusion as they are both Jehovah's Witnesses. Your task is to speak to the wife and answer her questions. Why was he given a blood transfusion? It's on his record that he is a Jehovah's Witness and he should not have been given any. Was he actually going to die without that treatment? Will he be given any more blood or any other treatments against his will? Who can I talk to if I want to complain about his treatment in hospital? Oh, listeners, what a tricky position we find ourselves in in this case. For those who aren't aware, patients who are Jehovah's Witnesses strongly object to receiving any form of blood product as it is strictly against their spiritual beliefs. A gentleman who's a Jehovah's Witness, which was not known when he was admitted to hospital, is treated with a blood transfusion for life-threatening bleeding. I think the first thing to say would be to apologise, and I would say this is not an admission of guilt, but this is purely to connect on a human level and say, I'm terribly sorry this has happened. It was inadvertent, and at the time, it was obviously unknown that the patient was a Jehovah's Witness. In the case that doctors don't know about a patient's wishes, they have to treat in the best interest. And in a patient so critically unwell, as was the case in this scenario, it would be important to treat in the patient's best interests. The second question, was he actually going to die? Well, he was hemodynamically unstable and the endoscopy showed active bleeding and he had a hemoglobin of five at that point. So, In my view, it would be reasonable to say he probably would have died if we didn't treat him. Will he be given any more blood or treatment against his will? So I think this is the point at which you can reassure the relative and say, now that we know this about him, of course, we won't give him any more blood products. And obviously, we will respect all of his wishes regarding his treatment, providing he has capacity when he wakes up. If he doesn't have capacity when he wakes up, then all decisions made on his behalf will be consulted with his wife and take into account any previously expressed wishes. Now, when relatives ask about complaints in an NHS hospital, the first point of call you should always refer to is PALS. That is the Patient Advice and Liaison Service. This is the go-to place for any patient or relative who wants to make a comment or complaint about their care. So this is the go-to place that you should always 
refer relatives or patients to if they want to make a complaint about their care. But without further ado, let's get on to case number three. A 50-year-old man who works as a delivery driver has been admitted with a suspected non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. He has a family history of heart disease, currently smokes 30 cigarettes a day. He has known hypertension and high cholesterol. His blood tests showed a troponin rise up to 900 with corresponding ischemic changes on his ECG. He has been started on medical treatment and has been awaiting his angiogram and his echocardiogram. Unfortunately, due to short staffing in the echo department and long angiogram lists, he has not been able to have any investigations for the last three days. The nursing staff say he is fed up and on the point of self-discharging and appears to have capacity to make the decision. Your task is to speak to the patient and answer any questions he may have. I don't really believe I've had a heart attack. Um, the chest pain went away with the drugs I had with the paramedics and I felt fine ever since I came to hospital and to realize I don't think I can bear being here any longer. I feel fine now. I haven't had any chest pain since coming in. Um, can't I just have the investigations as an outpatient? I'm under a lot of stress at work at the moment. Being in hospital is not helping. I overheard someone saying that I, I won't be able to drive and is that true? Because nobody told me. No one told me there would be a driving restriction. How long is it gonna be? Will there be a difference if I stay in hospital or can I just go home now? Jeepers Creepers team, it's a difficult case with an angry or disgruntled patient, certainly something which has come up in paces many times before. Um, the important things in this case are to understand where the patient is coming from. I think most of us would be pretty knocked off if we'd spent three days in hospital with basically, apparently, nothing going on. So the important place to start was the first question, which was he doesn't believe he's had a heart attack and he can't stay anymore. It would be important to present the evidence in front of him. So the ECG fits with changes consistent with a heart attack. The blood test troponin shows a rise, which would be consistent as well. The other thing would be to sensitively explain that he is also very high risk for a heart attack with multiple cardiac risk factors. And it will also be high risk for him to go home. The second question was regarding whether or not he can have the investigations as an outpatient. Well, if he's absolutely adamant to go home, and as long as he understands the risks associated with doing that, you might perceive him to be making an unwise decision. But again, as we discussed earlier, this does not mean that he lacks capacity. The important thing would be to explain the significant risks, including the risk of death, and to get the highest marks in this particular station, you could consider calculating a GRACE score to exactly quantify the risk of these adverse events. Importantly, the vignette I've read to you doesn't give you enough information to make the calculation, and it's unlikely that you would be expected to do this during the exam. He mentions that he's under a lot of stress and being in hospital isn't helping. And importantly, no one has told him yet about the possible driving restrictions. So, 
you'll need to correct him. There will be a driving restriction in the UK, brackets correct at the time of recording, close brackets, without knowing the result of his echocardiogram, the guidance from the DVLA that if he doesn't have any angioplasty, and as long as he just drives a car and not a bus or lorry or heavy goods vehicle, the driving restriction is four weeks. If you don't know this at the time, I would always recommend that you say you would check the DVLA guidelines to ensure you are giving him the most up-to-date information. And the last question. No one told me there would be a driving restriction. How long will it be? Will there be a difference if I stay in hospital or go home now? To answer this accurately, you really need to have strong knowledge of the driving regulations. So if he stays and has successful angioplasty with no further plans for revascularization, and as long as his echocardiogram shows an ejection fraction of over 40%, the driving restriction may be reduced from one month to one week. However, you won't know that until he has his investigations. So the conclusion would be you explain all of the above to him. He reluctantly agrees to stay for investigations. If you force the issue or if you don't know the driving restriction advice, he may not be amenable to staying. But the important thing is we work in hospitals, not in prisons. So in this case, it is painted that he does have capacity and would be able to self-discharge if he was adamant he wanted to leave as long as he understood the risks of doing so. So there we are, guys. That's the end of our three clinical cases. And it's just about the end of the episode. We really hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast, especially these solo sit-down episodes. I'm always so grateful to you guys giving up your time to give yourself the best chance of passing the MRCP Paces. Don't forget, we're always grateful for you guys getting in touch with us on email. It's prepacespodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter, it's at prepacespodcast. And if you have any suggestions for topics you want covered, please do let us know. One last final request is, guys, if you really enjoy the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, please do give us a five-star rating, if possible, wherever you choose to listen. Either way, we are so grateful for you guys taking the time out to listen. We really hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we will see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast.